0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 14. We're going to read to verse 32. I told Kim I was going to do that. I'd probably end up expanding the reading a little bit. And sure enough, I was a prophet, and I've done it. But just to give you the context as you turn there, uh, sandwiched between two predictions that Jesus makes of his suffering and death and resurrection, one of which we'll read at the end, uh, the passage that we're looking at today, uh, sandwiched between these two predictions that Jesus makes is the account of the transfiguration where Jesus, Jesus' glory is revealed to Peter, James, and John there on the mountain. And we looked at that Sunday before last And then you have this scene that we're looking at today, this this scene of total chaos before us today. And it's kind of a microcosm of the Christian life uh, where the moments where we get a taste of the glory of Christ are interrupted continuously by the brokenness, sinfulness, and trouble of our daily lives. It should be no surprise to us because Jesus said that if we would follow him then we would, then that's going to include daily cross-bearing. So as we look at this passage, let us descend into the chaos that Jesus descended to into as he came off the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise." But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This passage before us today speaks of faith. Faith is obviously very important to Christians. As Hebrew 11.6 tells us, without faith it is impossible to please God. We see here that Jesus descends into this scene of turmoil in chaos, he finds a, a crowd gathered around his disciples and the scribes as they argue with one another. The argument centers on this failed exorcism by the disciples. We find out in verse 29 that they had attempted to cast this demon out from this boy without even praying about it. And that's the reason why uh, the exorcism is unsuccessful. And, of course, the scribes are probably pontificating about the reasons why the disciples have failed, uh, not offering any help to the poor demon-possessed boy in the meantime. And so the argument ensues, and the crowds gather around. And this scene causes Jesus to call them all a faithless generation. Jesus identifies the problem here as a lack of faith. This passage is speaking to us about faith. Now when Jesus turns to the boy's father and interviews him, the father says in verse 22, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us out. And Jesus says in reply, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Again, faith. This passage is speaking to us about faith. Now, what does Jesus mean when he calls these people a faithless generation? And what does he mean by saying all things are possible for him who believes? What does faith look like? Now, I have one point today, only one point, and then I want to give you some reasons why uh, that point is true. And the point is this. Faith requires a humble dependence on God. Faith requires a humble dependence upon God. That's, that's really the first step of faith, a humble dependence upon God. Now, what is faith? Uh, if you're any kind of a Bible scholar, you probably know that there's a great definition in the Bible itself. In Hebrews 11, again, verse 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, when we read that verse, uh, the words assurance and conviction stand out to us. Uh, And it can lead us to believe that faith has to be perfect psychological certainty. People say, for example, if I have enough faith, God will answer my prayer. Or if I just had enough faith, God would answer my prayer. Or On the flip side, my prayer wasn't answered. Uh, Doubt entered in. There was not perfect certainty, and therefore the prayer went unanswered. I would contend that that's a faulty understanding of what faith is and really does lead to confusion and pain. And the classic example of this, of course, is healing. Uh, A lot of people pray for healing, and when they're not healed, someone says, Well, it's because you did not have enough faith. And it's very sad for those people who have to endure suffering and and are not healed. And then, on top of not being healed, uh, they find their faith is cast in doubt as well. So this view is faulty. We can also get it from what Jesus says here to the man. Uh, if, if If you believe all things are possible... For the one who believes, all things are possible. But Jesus doesn't mean here that if you just believe hard enough or have enough certainty, then what you pray for will will be uh, given to you. Here's how it's a faulty view of faith. If you think that Christ will not hear you until your faith is in a certain condition, until it's strong enough or uh, If you believe hard enough, then you're actually having faith in faith instead of faith in Christ. That shifts the emphasis from Christ to the condition of your faith is that which helps you. You know, when you say, if I believe hard enough, then God will heal me. Well, what you're you're looking at is your own self, your own faith. And that's got to be good enough for something to happen. So then the onus becomes yours. You're the one that is actually bringing about the healing or not bringing about the healing. But that's not true faith. The most important part of faith is the object of your faith. To look to God. To look to Christ. He is the object. He's the only one who can actually do anything about the problems that we have. When people say prayers are not answered because of the condition of a person's faith. They're trusting in the wrong object. They're trusting in themselves instead of in Christ, where their faith should be. In that scenario, the onus is not on Christ, where it should be, but on the person and their ability to convince themselves that something will happen. It's kind of like uh, staring at the windshield instead of looking through the windshield. You know, if you just stared at the windshield while you were driving you're going to have a wreck. You're going to have an accident. And if you look at the condition of your faith rather than Christ, your life's going to become a wreck. You've got to look at the object of faith, which is Christ. Now, in Hebrews 11:1, 1, it says, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How much assurance and conviction must one have to have true faith. Those words are strong. But if you look at this passage before us today, the the boy's father is a great example to us because he says, I believe, help my unbelief. What he's actually admitting is that his faith is partial and incomplete. Uh, He's coming to Christ and he's not doubting that Christ wants to help him that's not it at all he came to the disciples recognizing that the disciples wanted to help him and his little boy so that was not the issue the issue is is he able and how and he and he says i, I, I believe but i'm not sure help my unbelief so he's he's expressing his doubt but that is exactly the point where Jesus begins to do something about this situation with a demon-possessed boy. Jesus begins to act as soon as the father admits his doubts. But the confession to Jesus shows loyalty and trust in him, you see, a humble dependence upon him. I'm coming to you, Christ, to do something about this problem. I'm not sure you can, but help me. Help me in that. Help me, uh, help me to have faith in you. It proves that faith is not a feeling of complete certainty. Jesus shows that faith is not primarily the absence of doubts and fears. But he shows great compassion on the man and on us as well. If we come to him humbly, depending on him and saying, I'm not sure, but Lord, I come to you and I'm placing this situation in your hands and I'm trusting in you. That's the beginning of faith. And it's actually all the steps of faith. Faith is committing to Jesus in humble dependence, and obeying Jesus despite your doubts and fears. My favorite example is the uh, fishermen, the the disciples. When Jesus, they've been fishing all night, uh, and and Jesus turns to Peter and says, you know, throw out your nets. They they've been cleaning their nets, listening to Jesus talk, Uh, and, and you know, nets can get dirty. And you've got to pick out all the seaweed and the stuff or the nets would rot. So he's fished all night. He's come in. He's cleaned his nets. And now Jesus says, who, by the way, is a carpenter, says, throw your nets out and you'll catch a bunch of fish. And Peter's going, Lord, <laughs> we fished all night. I've just cleaned these nets. And we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, here's what he says. But because you say so, I'll do it. See? It's the same thing that's happening with this man. I'm not sure, but I know who you are and I know what you're asking me to do and I'm humbly depending on you and I'm doing what you say. Hebrews 11 uh, gives us a hall of fame of people who had faith. They had the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But it didn't necessarily mean they had full disclosure they didn't have a clarity about everything that was going to happen if you look at the there's three great examples in there there's a, there's a number of people listed but noah abraham moses are three of the the bigger ones i'll just give you Noah and abraham it says here about noah in hebrews 11:7. 7 by faith noah being warned by god concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So Noah was told by God, as we know from Genesis, uh, God came to him and said, there's going to be a-, a big flood and I want you to prepare this ark and here are the dimensions for the ark and gather the animals, etc. And it tells us here in Hebrews that the reason that he obeyed was because of reverent fear. And it's the same way of saying Humble dependence. Uh, he, he knew God. Uh, I'm sure when he got the dimensions of this boat and said, you know, it's like the size of an aircraft carrier. This thing was huge. How am I going to do this? How am I going to gather up all these animals? Uh, there were probably a lots of doubts and fears that Noah had. But he did it because he, he humbly depended upon God. He had a respect for God. Abraham. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Could you imagine that? God coming to you and say, okay, I want you to pack up all your stuff and put it in the car and strap in the kids and I'll tell you where to go after that. That would be hard to do. And I'm sure Abraham had many doubts and fears as he began that journey. But he knew his God and he placed his life in God's hands, humbly depending upon the Lord. And of course the Lord did take him to that place. And all through the life of Abraham, you see that he had doubts and fears. God said, "I'm I'm going to give you descendants in addition to this land. And sometimes his faith failed and he took matters into his own hands. The episode with Hagar and Ishmael was him trying to take matters into his own hands. But he came back to the Lord and the Lord did provide exactly what he promised. Continued to humbly depend on the Lord. So even in that chapter that gives us the impression that we have to have perfect assurance and perfect certainty about things. There are many examples, and there are others as well, of people who did not have complete certainty, but the first step, completely putting their dependence upon the Lord in humility. Now let me repeat what I said before. Faith is committing to Jesus in humble dependence and obeying Jesus despite your doubts and fears. Now, Back to the person who fails to get healed, even though they, we might say, well, they're coming to Jesus in humble dependence, wanting to be healed and looking to Him to, to heal, heal them. Uh, why is that not rewarded? Well, it's not a magic trick. You see, humble dependence means that even when the prayer is not answered, you continue to humbly depend upon the Lord the Lord is big enough and smart enough and sovereign over all things, He may have a very good reason to not heal you. And you have to place your trust in Him and be humble about it. That's very difficult, I understand, it. I don't want to sell anybody's suffering short. But that's what humble dependence calls for. A trust in a God who is bigger than us and a recognition that we're not God. A posture of humble dependence is a necessary first step of faith, and it is also the posture necessary in every step of faith. You know, when we do things right, we tend to get overconfident, don't we? Well, you know, I've got it figured out now, and then all of a sudden we forget the Lord. Look at the disciples. You know, Christ had sent them out two by two in the previous chapter in Mark, and they cast out demons and they were amazed. And so now they think they can do it all on their own. And they don't even bother to pray. And they think they've got it all under control. And here they are being shamed by the scribes and the crowds as they fail. A posture of humble dependence is necessary for faith. Well, now let me uh, note a few reasons why faith requires humble dependence on God. Two things. We could make it three. Three. First of all, faith requires a humble dependence upon God because we underestimate the power of evil in the world. Now, there's much detail given here in this passage about the boy's condition. We're told that the the demon's aim in verse 22 is to destroy this little boy. He throws him in the fire. The demon makes him deaf and mute and causes convulsions. It was an overwhelming condition both physically and spiritually. It's caused by a demon. Now, we don't see demon possession like this in our daily experience. Most of us don't, I'm guessing. But that was, it was much more common back then, especially as Christ came into the world and encountered this evil. But no less, you and I have an enemy that wants to steal from us Kill and destroy us nonetheless. He is a deceiver and a liar, and he wants to destroy your soul like he tried to destroy this little boy. First Peter tells us that uh, we have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ephesians tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have an enemy out there who is trying to destroy us. Now, he doesn't show up, uh, unfortunately, in in uh, red onesie uh, with a pitchfork and a forked tail and little horns on his head. If, if we did, we'd recognize it. And we could say, oh, stay away from that guy. You might want to do so anyway because of what he's wearing. But, He comes to us, the Bible tells us, as an angel of light. Something attractive. So we need to be careful about sin. Because we think it's no big deal. But sin destroys us. It enslaves us. And the devil uses it to destroy our souls. So don't underestimate the power of evil in the world. The disciples thought they could cast out the demon on their own power without God's help, without praying at all. And to say that they were not strong enough is giving them too much credit. The Father stated it correctly in verse 18. I love what he says. I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. It wasn't they were not strong enough. It was they were not able, and they are not able. And the only reason they ever cast out any demons before was because they went in the name of Christ. They were his representatives as they went out and proclaimed the kingdom. They were not able. Remember, in this world, there's evil out there, and it wants to destroy you. And the world is also a broken place. And it doesn't matter how strong our walk is with Jesus, there will be many times of darkness and misery while this world continues. So don't underestimate the power of evil in the world. Secondly, don't underestimate the depth of sin in ourselves. I think Mark is probably using this story to point out the depth uh, of evil and sin in general and also the need for Jesus' death. Remember, it's sandwiched, and we read the second uh, prediction that Jesus makes of his death and the need for that. Uh, This boy here is a picture of the human race. We're spiritually possessed by evil, blind, deaf. Uh, And now this goes against the grain of our modern culture. You can look at movies. Uh, Movies tell us that we're, we're capable of great heroic actions. And we can save ourselves along with a little bit of magical help. I think that's why there's so many superhero movies these days. We'd like to think that we're superheroes. All we need is a little magic to go our way. But this story shows us that we're, like the disciples, completely unable to help ourselves or anyone else for that matter. So God didn't send us a great teacher, though Jesus was a great teacher. He didn't send us primarily a great moral example Though Christ is the perfect moral example. No, He sent us a Savior because we need to be saved. There's no other hope. Sin possesses us. Satan wants to destroy us. And Christ was sent into the world to save us from that. And this this account is a picture of that. Christ comes in. All human beings are exhausted and it didn't take very long to exhaust them. Christ comes in with His power and He saves the little boy. Jesus came and he had to die. He had to do something about our sin, about my sin, about your sin. You see, these people, the disciples, even the scribes for that matter, they had, they had pride. They had overconfidence in their own ability, blindness to the depths of evil. And, and, of course, that strikes us as well. And that's the reason why many people don't see that Jesus had to die. The apostles didn't realize how sinful they were and they think that following Jesus' example and His teaching is enough. That's the way it's always been. People who find the idea of the cross offensive or irrelevant have never seen the power of evil in themselves or in the world. We can be very superficial about that. Back to the... Faith, the first step is humble dependence. That word humble. Recognizing your need. Recognizing that you're not able to save yourself. That you need someone. And maybe you don't have perfect faith. That's okay. Christ works with people who don't have perfect faith. All it takes is a reaching out to Him. A reaching out and saying, Lord, I recognize that I need help and I can't help myself and all my human means are exhausted. Please save me, help me. And Christ will answer. It's important for us to know, as Dirty Harry said, I'm not recommending Dirty Harry movies, but one of the great lines from that is a man's got to know his limitations. We've got to know our limitations, and we're sinners, and we need salvation. The world is broken, evil is powerful, sin is rampant, humanity is helpless. We need salvation. Now, New Year's resolutions, you know, a lot of us have made New Year's resolutions and we, we you know, want to make a change for the new year. But, you know, human resolve, human willpower will only take you so far. Maybe you've already broken your resolution for the year. I think I have because I've been eating like crazy. Maybe we should change this to uh, a New Year's humble request for God's grace to change. That would be more appropriate, more along the lines of what the Bible actually teaches. May God grant us grace to depend upon Him, to humble ourselves and depend upon Him, and to see real change in our lives this year. Let's pray together.